Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 64 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is John Scalzi, author of novels such as Old Man's War, The Android's Dream, and Fuzzy Nation. He also maintains an extremely popular blog at whatever.scalzi.com. His latest novel, Red Shirts, is told from the point of view of a group of doomed ensigns in a Star Trek-style universe. Then stick around after the interview as we discuss the Star Trek franchise with guest geek E.C. Myers, who runs the Star Trek review site, theviewscreen.com. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with John Scalzi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. So your new novel is called Red Shirts. So what's that about? Red Shirts is a concept that goes back to the original Star Trek series. The idea is Kirk and Spock and Chekhov go down to a planet on an away team, and they take Ensign Jones, the security uh, ensign, with them. And somebody's got to be killed. And who is it going to be? Is it going to be Kirk? No. Is it going to be Spock? No. Is it Chekhov? He's going to get hurt, but they're not going to kill him. So it falls to Ensign Jones to die horribly for dramatic effect. When the original series first came out, people started knowing statistically it was a really bad idea to be going on these away teams with the uh, captain. And they started calling these people red shirts. And it's become a common enough phrase uh, in science fiction culture and in geek culture that when I did a story about these sorts of characters on a spaceship, it just was a natural title choice. The whole idea behind the book is these undercard ensigns and crew members start trying to avoid going on those away teams and trying to figure out how they can stop this thing from happening in a larger sense. And then, of course, the story goes from basically, I think, what people are expecting to kind of a weirder territory, which would have to if you want to actually keep this to be more than a single joke novel. Uh, so since the book is sort of a parody of Star Trek, we're just wondering how big of a Star Trek fan are you and what do you think are some of the strengths and weaknesses of the franchise? I would say I'm a medium-sized Star Trek fan, which is that I love the universe that it's created. And I've you know pretty much seen you know the original series, obviously. Next Generation is probably my home Star Trek fandom, if you want to call it that. And then I really actually like the brand new movie, except for five minutes where Spock, who is supposed to be a science officer, just unleashes a whole spiel of completely non-scientific stuff. It's a pretty good universe. You know, there's lots going on. People care about the characters. The science in it is frequently horrible. And uh, that's one of the things that I think I pick up in, in Red Shirts. But... If you can live with the horrible, horrible, bad, awful science that doesn't make sense, then it's not a bad place to live. Uh, so Red Church is dedicated in part to Will Wheaton, uh, who, of course, uh, starred on Star Trek The Next Generation, um, uh, and, you're, and whom you're friends with. Um, how, how did you two get to know each other, and uh, do you know what Will thought of the book? Will and I have a mutual friend in common named Michael Burns. And I've known Michael since he was in junior high, and Will knew him. Uh, originally through uh, his wife, Anne. Will had started reading my books for 
Audible, he'd done Fuzzy Nation and he'd done Android Stream and Agents of the Stars. And I wrote Red Shirts and clearly it seemed like this would be a book that would be up his alley. So I sent it to him just going, hey, would you like to read this? And he comes back with it going, oh my God, I love this so much. So that was made it easier to sort of co-dedicate it to him. It's it's co-dedicated to him, uh, to our mutual friend, Mike Burns, um, and then to the two producers of Stargate Universe, who I worked with primarily while I was that show's creative consultant. Uh, so in speaking of celebrities, uh, Red Shirts also has a theme song written by Jonathan Colton. Uh, how'd that come about? Back in like 2005, while I was writing the Android stream, this was right around the time that Jonathan Colton was just getting started. So I thought, hey, you know, this might be a thing where I can get him to write songs for this. This would be amusing. And so I, out of the blue, and he had no idea who I was, I think Old Man's War had just come out or something like that. I had said, hey, you should do this, right? Like three or four songs about this science fiction book that I'm doing. And here's the book. And I sent it as an attached file. So basically, you know, I was the creepy dude that said, Hey, you should work with me. And here's my book. Why don't you read it? And huh, uh, huh, I love your stuff. And so just, I think his entirely rational response at that time was like, Oh, attached file, crazy dude, hit delete. And that was the last that I heard of that. And then years later, of course we met and we kind of, uh, got along very well and I met, we mentioned that to him and he's like oh I didn't know if I had known maybe things would have been different I was like there's no possible way you could have known I was I did everything wrong in approaching you with that so um, last year when Fuzzy Nation came out I had Paul and Storm do a song as well and that actually worked out very well um, so it convinced me that this was sort of a fun thing to do with each of the each of the books and uh, this time around, I sent him an email and he went, hey, remember when I was at Creepy Stalker Dude? Now I'm going to do it again. But this time, you know who I am. So years ago, I heard you joke that you were part of a movement in science fiction called the New Comprehensible. Do you think that overall science fiction is too inaccessible to new readers? We have some of the best writers in science fiction and fantasy today that we've ever had in the genre. Um, that said, uh, one of the things is that when you have people who are really engaged on the literary side of writing, as many of our current really excellent writers are, there is a question of how approachable is it to someone who's just coming fresh into to the field. And so I think that what I do uh, in terms of how I craft my my words rhetorically, is fairly simple stuff. I don't mean that to denigrate myself. I mean that in the sense of uh, when I write, the person that I keep in, in mind is my mother-in-law. And my mother-in-law reads Nora Roberts, and she reads Julie Garwood, and she's going to read my stuff because I'm her son-in-law, and she loves me. And I don't want her to get lost. So what I do is when I'm writing this stuff, I think how am I going to communicate all the ideas that I want to communicate and at the same time make it something that Dora, my mother-in-law, will be able to follow? If I can make something that she's going to be able to follow and be interested in and going to have a good time reading, it seems likely to me that I should be able to get just about anybody to follow that up. 
And I think that for me, at least, that's the way it's worked. I mean, there's not a week goes by that I don't get an email from someone who says, I don't read science fiction, but I read yours and it was amazing and I was totally able to follow it. This is great. And my response to that is always, that's wonderful. Here are some more writers that you should look at. Are there any other sort of specific books that you tend to recommend to people who are new to the genre? A lot of the intake for science fiction used to be younger readers. And uh, so you would have the uh, the classic example would be the Heinlein Juveniles. And right now we have an entire segment called YA, which is basically doing the job that science fiction or fantasy used to do. There's So there's a lot of uptake in science fiction that way. Um, Scott Westerfeld, uh, Suzanne Collins are both very good examples of science fiction books that have been uh, written recently that have become obviously extraordinarily popular. For older readers, it's easy to pat, you know send them to Pat Rothfuss as an example. I actually like Stephen Bruce's work quite a lot. I think it's very easy to, to get into if you've never read uh, any sort of fantasy before, especially because it almost has a noirish quality to it. So any of the books that he has in the Jared series, I think, are, are a great great way to get involved with that. I think of a lot of people, if they want action-adventure, uh, Richard K. Morgan uh, is a great way for them to start because, you know, it's it's filled with action and cool ideas. There's the uh, new book series that is that is coming out by uh, Ty Frank and uh, Daniel Abraham under the, uh, I think, J.A. Corey brand. Uh, Leviathan Rising, I think, is the first uh, title to that, although you would have to double-check that. Okay, so, you know, obviously, uh, given the name of our podcast, we're big Douglas Adams fans, but I recently heard you describe Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as an extinction-level event for humor in science fiction. Uh, what do you mean by that? Star Wars was an extinction-level event for a certain kind of science fiction movie that just preceded Star Wars. Right before Star Wars, between 1968 and about 1976, most of the big science fiction films were this topic in one way or another. You started with uh, Planet of the Apes, you went through like Omega Man, Silent Running, the last one was uh, Logan's Run. And they were sort of socially conscious, and they were sort of uh, going, "Look, what we will do terrible things if we don't, you know, change our ways, and so on and so forth." And Star Wars came in and was like, "I don't care about any of that. Look, I got lasers. I got guys with lightning swords in there swinging at them each other. I got this mystical force, and all the stuff is cool, and there are explosions, and it really just wiped off from the map all that sort of dystopic fiction. That wasn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think that." From point of view of a viewer, eight years of dystopic fiction, uh, science fiction is about as far as you want to go. But immediately afterwards, everything else in science fiction was, let's do that thing that Star Wars did so well. And made perfect sense because adjusted for inflation, it made like a billion dollars at, at the box office. In the same way, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was tremendously successful. It was tremendously funny. I remember reading it when I was 12 and just being certain I was going to pee myself. But at the same time, it was so successful that it basically defined what humor in science fiction was going to be for the next 
couple of decades. And the problem with it in this particular case, and, and this was a problem that they ran into with the movies that were trying to capitalize on Star Wars as well, is that you can put all the elements there, but unless you've got a spark that really makes it fly, it's just not going to work. In this particular case, Douglas Adams had something that most of the folks who were trying to replicate his humor didn't. He was British, he was a farcicist, and he knew what he was doing in terms of having that particular type of humor. Other people can ape that sort of humor, but if it doesn't work, then it just fails miserably. And I, I certainly know that with, for example, Agent to the Stars or The Android's Dream, those are pretty funny books. And I would, you know, I consider them basically comedies. But we didn't market them like that. And part of the reason that we didn't market them like that is because there was the concern that uh, if they were marketed as humor, that they just wouldn't sell. I mean, I, my uh, publisher in the UK uh, at the time, Tor UK, passed on Fuzzy Nation because they're like, oh, it's a humor book and humor doesn't sell. One of the things I say about Red Shirts is that it took me eight books to finally be at a point in my career where I could come out with a book and say, this is meant to be a funny book, and we didn't have to make any bones about it. Uh, so given that, uh, do you have any sort of advice that you would give to new writers who, who want to write funny science fiction? Well, I'm one, I would encourage people to attempt to write uh, amusing science fiction. I think it's much easier to sell amusing science fiction in a short story market uh, than it would be for the novel market. I think in the dynamics of those markets are uh, separate things. I think that the way that it worked for me was that I spent, like I said, eight novels, not just getting to a point where I could write a humorous novel, but each of the novels that I write have moments of humor and levity and sarcasm and everything else, and that people got used to the idea that this was something that I did. I think things are changing. I mean, I do think that we are in flux, and you know, this is going to sound obnoxious, but I think one of the nice things about Red Shirts getting onto the actual bestseller list and doing as well as it has been doing is that it is kind of a wake-up call that the science fiction audience, regardless of, you know, the long-held uh, superstitions or beliefs of those who publish the stuff, is more than happy to entertain the idea of humorous science fiction. So you described Douglas Adams as a British pharmacist. Do you see Red Shirts or any of your other books as falling into a particular style or a tradition of humor? I'm an American sarcasticist. <laughs> um, no, I, I think my sense of humor comes from, you know, I think a long sense, uh, a long uh, trail of American humor that stretches all the way back uh, into the 20s. I mean, some of my touchstones for humor are. James Thurber, Robert Benchley, and Dorothy Parker. And a lot of the humor that I have comes through dialogue that comes through screenwriters like Ben Hecht or William Goldman or Elaine May or Larry Gelbart, who, you know, wrote Tootsie and also wrote MASH. Uh, a lot of my humor comes from places like uh, newspaper columnists, like uh, PJ O'Rourke, 
or Molly Ivins or Mike Royko, to a lesser extent, Tim Berry. Also, uh, outside the science fiction genre, for example, Carl Hyassen or uh, Gregory McDonald, who wrote the Fletch books, and Elmer Leonard. So your blog, Whatever, has been described as having one of the few readable comment sections online. Uh, what, do you think <laughs> what do you think that is? Uh, it's because I will mallet into oblivion anybody who gets out of line and is too obnoxious. I have a long-standing comment policy where I say, here are the rules, stick to them, and we won't have any problem. So that's part of it, too. If you have the rules and uh, everybody knows them and everybody can see them and they're easily referable to, then most people are going to you know, follow them. The second thing is that I do actively moderate. If people don't follow the rules, then I will either tell them to straighten up, or if they don't straighten up, I will remove their posts. And if they become too much of a problem, I will moderate them uh, or eventually ban them. And because I don't tolerate people trolling or being horrible to each other or making just absolutely, you know, cookie cutter arguments that they got off of talk radio or wherever else that they got them from, it means that the people who do that sort of crap don't stick around on my site too long. I mean, when I write something that is controversial and goes outside of my usual sphere of people who read and comment and link in, like, for example, the thing about the lowest difficulty setting, which happened very recently, occasionally we will get people in who are not sort of the usual gang in terms of commenters. And when that happens, a lot of them don't pay attention to the comment rules and the uh, the comment threads can get kind of funky. And that's, like I said, that's when I have to go in swinging the mallet of loving correction, as I call it, and clearing it out. So your career as a novelist seems to have benefited enormously from your online presence. How important do you think it is for writers these days to post photos of bacon on their cats? Uh, <laughs> I, the, the bacon on the cat thing has been done. I would suggest that they try something else instead. If you are someone like me who really enjoys writing in an extracurricular sort of way about a whole bunch of other stuff and having your own website makes it easy to do it and you have time and the interest to build the site over many, many years and you know maintain it so it just doesn't become uh, an outlet for marketing, 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 then it's great. If you are doing it because a publicist or marketing person said to you, oh, you should have a blog, and you go, okay, well, I guess I, I should do that, uh, and sort of dutifully put things on your blog or dutifully put things on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, then it's not going to work for you at all. I mean, the the simple fact of the matter is that there's no right way to market yourself or no one right way. There's not something that's just going to work for everybody. There are very successful writers who have almost absolutely no web presence at, at all. And Neil Stevenson is a perfect example of that. His website, as far as I recall the last time I was there at it, was basically, this is why I'm not on the web. This is why I don't answer mail. This is why I don't do any of this crap. And uh, it doesn't seem to have had a negative impact on his career at all because ultimately his books are fantastic and people are interested in the books. 
On the other hand, you have people like me or people like Corey who are these sort of public internet individuals. And there's definitely a benefit for us to have our online presence in terms of what we do uh, in our in our fiction. But at the same time, there are also people who have huge web presences or huge Twitter presences or whatever who don't particularly see the benefit of it for anything else they do because the books are not necessarily of interest to anybody else or they just, uh, for whatever reason, the the fame doesn't transfer. And the the fact of the matter is, even with what I do, there's a large circle of people who read my website. There's a large circle of people who read the science fiction, and there is overlap between those two circles, but the overlap is not as big as I think a lot of people think. There are some people who have read my blog for 10 years or more who haven't read any of my books because they're like, eh, I'm just not interested in that or, uh, you know, I would have to pay money for that. Um, and then there are other people who I know read my science fiction and they're like, I know you have a blog, but I never read the blog because, you know, uh, I don't want to know too much about you because inevitably I, you will disappoint me. Which is a totally valid thing. I mean, I think there are science fiction and fantasy writers out there whose, you know, people have read their prose and loved their prose and then have gone to seek them out online and discovered that their political opinions are completely anathema to what they believe and now they can't enjoy the prose as much. That sometimes happens to me. I mean, Old Man's War came out um, was championed by Instapundit and a bunch of other conservative folks. And it's military science fiction, so the sort of assumption was that I was, you know, this at least vaguely conservative writer. And then they come over to my website, and surprise, I'm basically a generic United States screaming liberal. I've literally had people, like, leave messages, you know, emails or posts that go, I'm disappointed that you feel this way. Now I can no longer read your books. And, you know, my response to that is always, one, kiss my ass. I'm not going to stop saying what I want to say just because you don't write my, won't read my books anymore. And second of all, what do you expect? I'm a human being. I have opinions. You know, it doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. I'm inevitably going to have uh, an opinion or I'm going to say something or I'm going to do something that's going to annoy you. If the only people that you ever uh, read are people who completely line up with you on every single uh, social, political, technological thing. I mean, I've had somebody like stop reading me because I snarked on Apple products one time. But if you, if that's the, your criteria, the number of people that you're going to eventually allow yourself to read is very, very small. Uh, so I've heard that your editor, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, uh, first got interested in your fiction after reading an essay you wrote about Robert Heinlein. Can you tell us what that essay was about? Well, the essay was talking about lessons from Heinlein in terms of storytelling. His dialogue was believable as things that people would say to each other as opposed to exposition being hidden as speech, for example. He was also concerned about entertaining people and making them have a good time with the reading. The reason that I had brought that to his attention uh, at the time was he had mentioned something on his website prior to 
uh, me writing this piece on Heinlein that regarding uh, Heinlein and, and, and his ability to sort of write good transparent prose and uh, characters and so on and so forth. And so I sent him the email apropos to that. I warned him at the time. I was like, I'm sending this to you because this is relating to, you know, this Heinlein thing that you did. It appended when I serialized Old Man's War on my website. I said, but don't read that because if I'm going to submit it to you, I'm going to do it, you know, the way that you've already asked me to do this. But this can be read on its own. Patrick didn't listen to me. He read the essay and he was like, well, okay, now I have to see if this book that uh, he, he's appended this to is actually anything like that. And then he read it and that's when he made me the offer. And so in retrospect, people are asking, it's like, that's sort of daring him not to read your book. So, you know, you were trying to do some sort of three-dimensional chess with him on, as far as that went. And my answer to that was no. Actually, I assume that someone who is uh, in Patrick's position actually has no interest in, you know, just sort of randomly reading everything that gets put up on the web because, you know, who has time? I just didn't realize that Patrick had that particular sort of curious behavior uh, of going, well, now I have to see if what he's written here matches up with what he wrote in his book. Oh, my God, it does. I think I should buy this. So you mentioned earlier that you served as a consultant for the TV show uh, Stargate Universe. Uh, How did that come about, and what was your role in the show? Basically, one of the producers uh, had sent me an email going, I've read Old Man's War, and I loved it. It's perfect right for us for Stargate Atlantis. And uh, my response to that was, thank you very much. You're very cool. I can't write for Stargate Atlantis because I don't watch it. And if you don't watch something and you come in and you write an episode for it, then it's basically going to be terrible. And I didn't want to be the guy who wrote a script that was terrible and just got put out anyway because the producer thought I was a cool dude. And he said to me, well, okay, that's fair enough. Uh, if we do another Stargate television show, would you like to be involved with that? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, start on the ground floor of a, you know, established universe and build it up from that foundation. That's totally something I would want to be behind. And he says, great. And then I didn't hear from him for about another year. And I completely forgot about it because really that's one of those future things that's along the lines of, hey, let's do lunch sometime, right? And then a year later, he's like, okay, remember when I said that we were thinking about doing another Stargate TV show? Well, we're going to do it. It's called Stargate Universe. And here's the first script. Is this something you want to be involved with? And basically, what we decided that I was going to do was, for the first season at least, and it eventually uh, went through the uh, couple of seasons, that I was going to act as their creative consultant. And that meant looking at all the scripts and offering them opinions about stuff relating, A, to uh, the science of what they were doing, because I have a little bit of background in science stuff. I had written a book on astronomy and had done um, science-related articles for a while. And then B, give them character and script notes so that uh, they could uh, make sure that what they were doing dramatically was working as well. And so basically what would happen then is that they would send me a script. I would go through it and go, okay, here on this scene, uh, this scientific thing that you're trying to do here is wrong. Here's what 
actually happens in the real world. And here's a way that you can fudge it so that you can do what you're trying to achieve without having to completely overhaul the script. And then I was also doing things like, because Stargate University Ideas is a spaceship that gets flung like billions of light years away from anything, and there's no way for them to return home. One of the things that I told them that they needed to do was actually not do the thing that everybody else does, which is kill off their crew members, you know, and then just shoot things indiscriminately or use resources indiscriminately. It's like every bullet you use is a bullet you don't have anymore. Uh, and for this ship, that actually matters. Or as another example, and this is a great story because it relates to red shirts, I'm reading a script uh, from the first season and it has uh, a crewman walking down the hall. And it literally says in the script, red shirt walks down the hall. And you're like, okay, that dude's not making it to the end of that hall. And true enough, you know, a couple of sentences later, the hall explodes and the guy dies. And I pointed out to them, you can't kill off all of your crew members in a very casual way because the way that this television show is designed, you can't replace them. And so eventually, if you kill them off at the rate that you're killing them off, by the end of the season, there's just going to be the five main stars and that's it. So my innovation for red shirts in Stargate Universe, and if you watch the two seasons, you'll see that this actually bears out, is that relatively few people die, but a lot of them are really horribly maimed. I don't know that that's necessarily a better thing for a red shirt, you know, that uh, instead of being dead, you you know, it's like, oh, you know, he nearly lost all his blood or whatever it was that happened to them, but we didn't kill them off indiscriminately. You know, one of the things that I haven't done, because I had no experience with it, is script writing. And so, basically, I was paid for two straight years to look at scripts and see how they function and see how they work. And as a result of that, now when I get to the point where I feel it's time to write a script, which I hope to do actually sometime in the reasonably near future, I have real-world practical experience. Is there anything you can say about your upcoming scripts that you might want to write? Well, no. I mean, if I'm going to write a script, I will basically write a script like I wrote my very first novel. And the very first novel I wrote, which is back in the mid-90s, I was like, I'm going to write this novel. I'm not going to worry about whether it's good. I'm not going to worry about whether it's something I can sell. I'm just going to write it to see if I can write it. And once it's done, I'm going to take a look at it and say, okay, these are the things that I did well. These are the things I need to improve on and then use that to write the second novel. And in fact, that's what I did. The first novel was really a lot of fun to write because I didn't put my pressure on it for to be to be good. It didn't have to be good. It just had to be novel length. And uh, I did learn quite a lot so that the, the next novel that I wrote was Old Man's War, which I was able to sell. So in that case, the first script that I write will literally be something that will be fun, something that I'm not planning to sell, and something where I'm just going to write it to see what I can, what I do easily and what things are difficult to me so that the second one will be easier. At this moment, I sort of have it in my brain to adapt the God engine into a script because it's, of all the things that I've written, that is the one that is sort of the most appropriate length for a feature-length film sort of thing. But as I said, 
if I'm going to do it, the the one thing I would caution everybody would be not to expect me to then sell that. It would be more of, I've written this script for God Engines, and oh my God, is it horrible, but I've learned something, and now I will try something else. Okay, so last year you published a novel called Fuzzy Nation, which you described as an experiment. Uh, in what way was it an experiment, and what did you learn from doing that experiment? It was an experiment in the sense that uh, reboots happen all the time in movies and television uh, and in comics, but they don't happen that often in literary stuff. And so it was an experiment to see uh, if that was because it's just practical considerations make it difficult or if it was just a really horrible idea and the reason that it doesn't happen very often is because it's a horrible, horrible idea. And uh, what I did was I picked a Golden Age science fiction story, which I really enjoyed, which was Little Fuzzy. And uh, it's a great story. H. Bean Piper did a fine job with it. It was nominated for a Hugo in 1962. But it's also very much a piece of its time. You can tell it was written in the early 60s by the way that the men acted and the way that the women acted and some of the cultural assumptions of uh, the the story at the time. And so I thought it would be fun to take the basic story idea of Little Fuzzy and bring it sort of into current time and current sensibility, not just in terms of socially, but also in how we craft these days our protagonists, how we uh, find the fundamental issues of a story, and so on and so forth. So, and that was part of the experiment, to see if the story itself, you know, the idea of here are these cute and fuzzy creatures, um, they could be sapient, and if they are sapient, there are going to be huge implications. To see if that story itself was durable or whether or not it was a, a creature of its own time. Now, one of the nice things about doing this with Little Fuzzy is that Little Fuzzy, the novel itself, was in the public domain so that there was no question about copyrights. And that's one of the reasons why these things are so infrequently done, which is, uh, like, for example, uh, rebooting Star Trek wasn't a problem because Paramount owned Star Trek, and it was in their interest to keep that property out there and moving and going forward. However, uh, most books are not owned by corporations. They're owned by individuals. And, you know, to be fair, if somebody came up to me and said, Old Man's War was great, but I want to reboot it and start from scratch, uh, my response would be, hmm, probably not. Again, this was something that I wrote just for my own amusement. I didn't actually, I honestly didn't have plans to sell it to a publisher at all. And then what happened afterwards as I wrote it, and I thought, well, this is good. And um, then my agent called me and said, what are you doing? Because I was you know, uncharacteristically quiet, and he hadn't heard from me. And if I don't send him books, he doesn't make money from me. Uh, and I said, well, I just wrote a novel, and I don't think that you're going to be able to sell it. And then his response to that really was, challenge accepted, send it. Even though the book was in public domain, which meant that there were no copyright issues, the H. Beam Piper estate still exists. We let them read it, and they liked it. And so we worked out a deal where the H. Bean Piper estate gets a cut of the the profits, and they also gave us an endorsement. And so that made things a lot easier 
uh, to sell. So it was a, it was an experiment. It was an experiment in, you know, updating a story. It was an experiment in the feasibility of rebooting a, you know, science fiction classic. And it was also a, uh, sort of experiment in how people would respond to a classic of the genre being rebooted in this sort of way. And the good news is it's sort of like on all fronts, it worked out very well. And now, of course, people are like, well, now you should reboot. And they can use the idea of some other thing that they want to reboot. I'm like, yeah, but I've, I've done it once. It's time to move on to something else. You know, we've, this is the proof of concept that this doesn't necessarily have to be a horrible idea. It doesn't mean that I want to keep doing it again and again and again. I might write a sequel eventually to Fuzzy Nation, you know, the book I wrote, but if I do that, that's going to be something else again, entirely separate than taking another classic of science fiction and sort of rebuilding it from the bottom up. And so when we solicited questions for the interview, uh, about 20 people wanted to ask, wanted us to ask you if you intend to chain your laptop to your wrist. So, uh, you know, people who read your blog know what that's about, but for those who don't, you want to tell us what the deal with that is? Uh, yeah, I lost my Mac Air at an airport for the second time in a month last Tuesday. And uh, the first time I was just furious and I was thumping around and I just couldn't believe it. And arr, arr, arr. Uh, But the second time it was just more of, I cannot believe I have just done this again. Because really, it's, it just makes you feel stupid. I mean, I'm, and I can see the computer, right? And I know exactly what happened, which was I'm working on it at the LaGuardia Gate 5 U.S. Airways terminal and they're calling our flight. So I go and I unplug the cord from the outlet and I wrap up the cord and I put it away and I zip up my thing and I'm ready to go. And I forgot that I left my computer there. I didn't close it up and put it in first. And so I'm just, uh, and so I've called LaGuardia and I've called us airways and they're, they're both looking for it. The nice thing about the Macs is that they have the find my iPhone thing on the iCloud so I can see it, right? It hasn't been opened. It's just sort of there somewhere. Uh, as soon as it opens up uh, and someone tries to access the internet with it, it's going to lock up and it'll put up a message that goes, hi, I'm a lost computer, please return me to, and gives all my contact information, right? But the problem is, is that until that happens, it's lost. Now, when I lost my the computer the first time three weeks ago at the Nebulas, I went and bought a spare uh, laptop. I got a little Acer netbook. It was like 250 bucks, and um, so that's what I'm using now. And I think that that was also the case of you know, oh well, you know, I've got I've got a backup, but it doesn't change the fact that I managed to lose the same computer twice in a month. You know, and people are like, you know, now you need to crazy glue it to yourself, handcuff it to yourself, you know, graft it into your brain like a brain pal. Or I think that the, the real key may just simply be try not to be as frazzled as I have been. I mean, because I've been on tour for literally my tour started June 3rd. And uh, it is now the very end of the month. My, my tour officially stops on July 1st. So I will have been with, you know, an occasional day at home to do laundry and make sure my pets and family, you know, recognize who I am, um, I will have been on tour for a month. Um, and I think that that's just the whole thing of being just a little frazzled uh, meant that my Mac Air was lost at LaGuardia. 
hopefully I will get it back. And if I don't, that's the worst part because part of my brain is like, ah, I can't believe you've lost your computer again. And then there's part of my, that little part of my brain that goes, but now you can get one of the new MacBooks with a retina screen. Woohoo! <laughs> so I'm really trying to fight that particular person. I really want to get that, uh, I really want to get my old computer back and not have to spend more money. <laughs> Okay, great. And so finally, just are there any other new or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? I mean, I'm working on a video game right now with a company called Industrial Toys, which is headed by uh, Alex Seropian, who's one of the co-founders of Bungie and who helped uh, make Halo. And so that will be cool. We haven't made the full announcement of the name of the game and everything else like that. But uh, that's been a lot of fun. And when we can finally announce it, that's going to be awesome. Uh, I'm also hard at work at a, a new project for Tor, uh, which I've sort of codenamed on my website as the Spank Chronicles Part 1, the Spankening, which actually the, the thing itself has nothing to do with spanking whatsoever. I, I want to be clear about that. But again, it's not something that I'm fully comfortable with talking about because uh, partly, you know, it's better to talk about things when they're actually finished and partly it's just not time. But again, as soon as I can talk about that, I'm more than happy to. But in, in both of those cases, uh, the really important thing is, yes, I am working on new stuff. Yes, it will be cool when I can tell you about it. And uh, yes, it's in the pipeline. You will not run out of things to read from John Scalzi. All right, great. So, John Scalzi, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thanks for having me. And that was our interview. So, thanks so much to John Scalzi for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, for the second half of the show today, we'll be discussing the Star Trek franchise with special guest geek E.C. Myers, who you may remember from the discussion of our favorite childhood cartoons back in episode 59. He's the author of the YA science fiction novel Faircoin, and also runs the Star Trek review website, theviewscreen.com. So, Eugene, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Okay, and so I think we're going to start out and just kind of talk about our sort of overall history of watching Star Trek. And I think I'll start, because I think mine's probably the shortest. The earliest queer memory I have of watching Star Trek is actually Star Trek Four, And after that, I went back and the uh, original series was on television after school when I was a kid, and I would watch that. I watched a lot of those episodes. And then I kind of watched Next Generation a lot, but very sporadically. You know, this was back in the days when you had to tune in at a particular time uh, to watch a show. And so I would watch it if it, were, if it was on, but I, uh, it was very irregular. And then when Deep Space Nine came out, I was like, all right, I'm going to actually get organized and actually watch every episode of this show. And I did that for maybe a year or two. And then I started missing some. And then since I had ruined my streak, I kind of lost interest. And then when Voyager came out, then I tried to do the same thing again. And I made again, I made it through maybe a season or a little bit more before uh, I sort of uh, just missed, missed too many. And then when Enterprise came out, I watched the first episode and I was like, yeah, I don't need to say any more of this. Um, and I've seen, all, I've seen all the movies except for Generations. I never actually saw that because I heard it was bad and I heard that they killed Kirk off and... I didn't want to watch Kirk die in a bad movie. And so it's weird, like any other franchise or whatever, if I had watched pretty much every movie, you know, if I had watched a dozen movies and over 100 episodes, I would consider myself a huge fan of that franchise. But when it comes to Star Trek, I just feel kind of like, kind of like a moderate Star Trek fan because there are so many people who are so much more into it than I am, um, which I think includes both of you guys, right? So like, John, what's, what's your Star Trek watching history? 
Uh, I mean, I've seen like every episode of the original series of Next Generation of Deep Space Nine of Voyager. I admit I did not finish watching Enterprise. I, I watched the first two seasons, I think, and, and then at some point I just gave up on it. You know, and uh, on top of having seen all of those, I, I've actually I actually recently rewatched every episode of all seven seasons of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Um, just as a personal you know thing to do, is like I was doing that anthology Federations, and it sort of got me thinking about Star Trek and everything, and how Next Generation was like you know my favorite Star Trek, and so I just I rewatched the whole series. Some of which don't hold up as well as I remembered, obviously. And there's some really terrible episodes, to be fair, but it's still my favorite Star Trek. I still may not have seen Star Trek V. I know I'd heard a lot of terrible <laughs> things about it, and for whatever reason, I, I don't think I've actually seen that. Um, I've certainly heard people talk about it. I've seen parts of it. I don't think I've actually watched it, though. Uh, I have seen all of the other movies, um, for sure. And uh, actually, like Dave, I really have vivid memories of Star Trek IV, uh, for whatever reason. Maybe just because that we're similar in age, and, and when that came out was uh, like a good time for us to sort of latch on to Star Trek. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I've, I've I've watched almost everything, and 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 even though that's that makes me pretty well an expert, I'm sure Eugene will put me to shame. <laughs> well, see, you know, it's possible that you saw Star Trek Five, and and your brain has just blocked it out. Um, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't blame you. It's actually funny. It's 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 kind of weird how I came to Star Trek and and how much of a fan I I became of it because when I was a kid, I actually went out of my way to avoid it. I used to see uh, snippets of the original series on late at night on TV, like when they were rerunning it. And I was just like, wow, that looks really cheesy. And I would actually get up and like change the channel. And uh, it wasn't until I think the seventh grade, uh, I, had a, I had a teacher and he was really into Star Trek and uh, he hadn't seen Star Trek VI yet and it was coming on cable. So I, I said, oh, well, I'll tape it for you. So I taped it and I watched uh, Star Trek VI and I thought that it was amazing. Like, I didn't know who any of these characters were except very vaguely, you know, from having he heard, the heard them talked about before. But somehow I still was really invested in the characters and the story I thought was really interesting and complex. And I suddenly had this appreciation for Star Trek beyond what I thought of it as being this campy, like cheesy show from the 60s. And that just happened to be around the same time that Deep Space Nine was about to premiere. So I sort of came at it like really late and kind of backwards. I started at the end of, you know, the Star Trek films. Um, and then I went back and, and watched everything from the beginning and as much as I could. And then when I had seen all of that, I started reading all the Star Trek tie-in novels. I've seen all of the series and all of the movies, including the Star Trek animated series, except for Enterprise. Like John, I, I got out in the probably like in the second season. I just couldn't do it anymore. And that kind of put me off Star Trek for a while. But so let's see. So, John, you said that your favorite is Next Gen, right? Mine is the original. I'll tell you why I like the original series the best. I mean, probably it's just because I watched it when I was the youngest. But each each series, essentially, I like less than the one that preceded it. And the reason I like still like the original series is because it was more like the Twilight Zone, just like any kind of weird shit could happen on that show. You know, they might just like run into Abraham Lincoln floating in space or, you know, end up in Alice in Wonderland or meet Greek gods. It was like a completely different thing every week. Whereas it seems like the, the, the like, especially with Deep Space Nine, it just seems more like it was just kind of like a soap opera slash war story. That just happened to be in a science fictional universe. And there was some science fictional stuff, but 
at, at its core, it was just kind of like a drama. And I always liked the more Twilight Zone-ish kind of aspect of, of Star Trek. I rewatched Deep Space Nine a couple of years ago uh, from the beginning for the very first time with a group of people who'd never, who'd never seen it before. And I ended up really liking, on the whole, the, the writing on that show holds up so much better than, than Next Gen. And sort of the scope of it, it maybe reflects a change in my taste and the way that I engage with story and sort of wanting just like a bigger canvas for everything to happen on. I think that, you know, with shows like Lost and, and Battlestar Galactica, that people now have this expectation of a continuing story, something that they feel more invested in. You look at the series from like season, late season three, season four through season seven, and you have this big story. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I actually loved the Space Nine as well. And, uh, uh, you know, once it sort of got going, like, you know, sort of like, as you saying, like, sort of, sort of late season three, season four or whatever, once they start, uh, they started doing those sort of ongoing storylines. And I mean, that is one, that's one of the things that always I found really frustrating about Star Trek in general. And I mean, it was even true on Deep Space Nine, even though they did it more so than in other Star Trek series. But the way that, that everything has to reset back to, you know, the stock characters uh by the end of the episode, it's like, you know, uh, that new person that they picked up on that episode. Yeah, no, they're not going to join the crew. They're going to, you know, they're going to die or they're going to get, you know, transported away at the end of the episode, you know, except in very rare cases. Um, and, you know, uh, as in red shirts, you know, uh, no, the main characters are not going to die. It's like only the red shirts <laughs> are going to die, you know. OK, so well, why don't we talk then about Voyager and Enterprise just quickly? Are we are we all down on them? <laughs> so so Voyager, I actually tried to stop watching it. Not only was I watching uh, Star Trek, uh, you know, once I got into it, I was watching Star Trek. I was also recording it every week for my own tape collection. That presented an interesting problem in the first season of Voyager because Deep Space Nine was syndicated and Voyager was on the fledgling UPN network. And through a quirk in scheduling, they were opposite each other on like Monday nights. So I had to choose, do I watch Who Says Nine or do I watch Voyager? And I ended up like recording one and then UPN would do a re rerun the next, you know, Saturday or something like that. So I was able to kind of keep up with both of them. But Voyager, um, I stopped watching it for a few episodes, I think at, shortly after Seven of Nine joined. So that would have been like season four, I think. But I was still recording it. And I got like two or three episodes past like where it stopped watching and I, I started feeling like I was missing something like what if what if there's a really brilliant episode and I'm just not gonna I'm not gonna know about it so I went back and watched the ones that I had taped and then I just stuck stuck with it uh, right through the end and I would say in seven years of Voyager there were seven episodes I was really glad I saw like seven episodes that were probably as good as any Star Trek you've ever watched and most of them had to do with the holographic doctor the problem with Voyager was always that it had really great ideas, um, really science fictional ideas, and the execution was just really poor. And I'd never really connected with most of the characters the way that I did on Next Gen or in the original series or even on Deep Space Nine. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed I enjoyed it for what it was, uh, you know, which is uh, basically it's like another it's like another next generation, but with different crew, different ship, and you know, thrown on the other side of the galaxy. And I mean, it's like. It, it was sort of like, you know, I mean, based on that premise, I was like, well, uh, I thought it was pretty good. 
I, I think I certainly I think I got better once Seven of Nine showed up because she was an interesting character. Um, you know, it's like the the ex Borg uh sort of character and uh mm-hmm. um the the character that she sort of uh, replaced this uh this this woman named Kess. Uh, she was like very like I don't I didn't understand why she was there. She was like uh, I don't know, very boring and un- uninteresting character. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I don't know that I could name any <laughs> any episodes or anything of Voyager. Like, I mean, I'm I'm sure there's some that I would remember if we talked about it. Like, Dave and I talked about um, the one episode where Tuvix uh, happens, where you know it's like a, uh, mm-hmm. you know there's a transporter accident and and Tuvok and and Neelix get merged into one being. Um, and we talked about that, and I mean that was kind of cool. But yeah, I mean you're totally right about the holographic Doctor. I mean he he was the best character on the show, and he's there as like an emergency. Uh, so he's like the emergency medical hologram, and and because their doctor is killed when they get flung to the other side of the galaxy, it's like he's their only doctor. And then, um, but because he keeps, um, because he's online almost constantly, because he's the only doctor they have, um, you know, he really starts to develop. Like, and so it's like it's it's a pretty cool exploration of like artificial intelligence and everything. Um, which of course, uh, Star Trek has done very well with like with uh, characters like Data. Um, and I mean, I think if Deep Space Nine was missing anything, it was that it was that they didn't have any cool artificial intelligence like data or the holographic doctor uh for us to to geek out over it's something that john said in his in his interview holds up for voyager and and i sort of felt betrayed by the show because you watch the first you know in the first episode they're like oh we've got like 300 photon torpedoes or something like that i was like that's really cool i'm gonna count them you know like somebody's gonna be counting these to make sure that because where are they gonna get more and they just forgot they forgot about it you know, as opposed to like on Battlestar Galactica, where at least they would go on to other planets and they would find, you know, resources. And as you watch the show, the ship gets more and more decrepit, you know, because it's literally falling apart at the end. And Voyager looks as pristine on like the last day as it did when it was on its like maiden voyage, you know. And so basically, the, the less said about Enterprise, the better, I think. I can't really say that much about Enterprise. I didn't finish watching it. You know, I I think I've heard that the last season improves, like when they kind of get a little bit more fan servicey, because like Brent Spiner shows up as like an ancestor of of uh, Doctor Noonien Singh, and I never saw that one. And there was an episode they did a story arc where they actually explain like what happened to the Klingons, like why their foreheads look that way, and I never saw that one either. So I think it, I think they went to some interesting places, but that was another show that really failed its premise. I think it was a bad idea to, you know, after we had all this Star Trek history to then take us back before um, the original series in terms of the timeline. If you're going to continue the Star Trek universe, it's like I would have rather they just they jumped 100 years into the future again or something like they did with Next Generation. You know, it's like, let's see where else Star Trek can go rather than where it's been, you know. Where did this idea come from that uh, Vulcans find humans that like they can't bear the smell of humans like that was such a strange thing to introduce in, into the into the continuity um and then they had that like um the quarantine like the the showers where they had to like rub each other down with this gel or something uh, uh, like what is this <laughs> just like i don't know what i'm watching right now and yeah that that in particular with the uh was a little uh, appalling with the uh the casting uh, uh what what was the vulcan's name um uh, but you know they have this really to Paul, yeah. Like they they have this really hot uh, woman playing the the Vulcan on the show, and then and so they 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 have to play up that with the uh, with the Ponfar, the you know the the Vulcan sort of sex thing, and uh, 
they really played that up with the whole rubbing each other down thing and got her mm. mostly naked as much as possible uh, in, in a way that uh, seemed much more exploitive than I've seen on Star Trek before. I mean, they did it a little bit with uh, Seven of Nine, but uh, they seem to really take advantage of it as much as possible with T'Pol. Well, but if you go back to the original series, I mean, there were like the Orion slave girls and Gene Roddenberry's wife in a short skirt, just kind of always walking around on the bridge for no apparent reason and stuff like that. Right, but that's not how you bring Star Trek back to its roots, by bringing back the misogyny, <laughs> you know? Well, let's let's talk about sort of the flip side of that, is that Star Trek always did have sort of a progressive, forward-thinking, sort of social consciousness thing going on. In the original series, you know, I mean, like, there's this story about Whoopi Goldberg seeing, um, you know, Lieutenant Uhura in Star Trek, and it was like the first African-American character she had seen who wasn't a maid, I think, was was what she said on television. And, um, you know, like Star Trek, the original series, had the first interracial kiss. You know, and, and like, like there's the episode of the original series where there are the characters who are black on one side of their body and white on the other, and it's sort of um, mocking racism. They were never really subtle. Star Trek has, has never really been subtle. If they're going to tackle something like homosexuality or racism, you know that that's what the episode's about, and they're going to kind of beat you over the head with it. But Next Gen kind of takes takes it a little bit too far. Like, I've I've been rewatching the series for the view screen, and, you know, they'll say, oh, you're, uh, we don't have religion anymore, or we don't believe in nationalism. Like, oh, they still have, they still have flags. That's so quaint. And the problem with with a lot of the, these references in the early in the early episodes is that it would just completely sidetrack the episode. It would come out of nowhere. Like suddenly you're, you've got all this momentum. You're talking about the story, and then you're in this exposition, and then suddenly the characters will start. You they'll get up on their soapbox and and take like a couple minutes to tell you like taking drugs is wrong. They move away from that later on, but like certainly the early the earlier episodes and the episodes that I think that Roddenberry was more closely involved with took it too far yeah fair enough i mean although i I do i mean i don't remember honestly next generation well enough to say what i think of how it was presented there but i really did like star trek 4 and the sort of save the whales message in that and i really felt like the that was very successfully done at no point did kirk say those madmen they destroyed their their oceans (laughs) you know and now they must pay for their short-sightedness like that didn't happen they're just like oh you know they died out let's fix this but, I mean, like, you know, Star Trek Four is kind of about Save the Whales, and Star Trek Six is sort of a Cold War, glasnost parable. And it is, I think I think the a lot of them, I actually like First Contact a lot, too, although I'm not sure it's really about any larger issues. That... It's about the dangers of time travel. <laughs> but I felt like, like, Nemesis and, like, some of the later ones, it just feels like they're not really about anything. They're just sort of... Well, they ended up being, like, action movies. This is a, I don't think this is my observation, but it's really like you, you, starting with Star Trek II, which was arguably like the best of the original series movies. Star Trek ended up becoming this thing where you had to have some kind of big villain, somebody for the for the crew to stop, as opposed to being this sort of contemplative exploration of uh, an interesting situation and, and the characters' responses to it. Yeah, I mean that's that's one reason why I'm like I'm not even really interested in Star Trek as movies, uh, and I mean they're they're fine. You know, and I enjoy them uh, for the most part, but I, I just I, I want Star Trek back on television where it belongs because 
almost every Star Trek episode is too small to be a movie because of what they become. Like you said, there's got to be some villain. There's got to be big action pieces and everything. And, and like, and I like those smaller stories. I, I like these. I like I like the episodes that are like, you know, this weird little scientific puzzle that they have to figure out. You know, even if it doesn't make sense scientifically, it's just like if it makes sense within the context of Star Trek, that's fine. I, I kind of wish we could just get back to that. And it's like, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't care about the big movies. It's like you know, there's there's plenty of big movies with explosions and stuff all over the place. I don't need that to be Star Trek. I want Star Trek to be, you know, the the thoughtful, more contemplative thing that you know we see on the television show. Yeah, I mean that's that's my thing. Like with the, I mean, I I really enjoyed the the J.J. Abrams reboot, although it doesn't make a lot. Of, I mean, I sort of loved the characters. None of it really made any sense, but I you know I enjoyed it. But it does seem like John's saying it doesn't seem like the sort of franchise that's ever going to be thoughtful. You expect the sequel or its sequel or its sequel if they make them to deal with any social themes or any big ideas, or is it just going to be action blockbusters from here to eternity? It's action all the way down, buddy. Like so, my my thing, like if I if I were going to do a Star Trek reboot movie, or if I were going to do the sequel, like I would have done um, the Cage from uh, from the original series. So the the unaired pilot, the original pilot of Star Trek, uh, was the Cage, and it had a different captain. It had Christopher Pike, and these really powerful aliens kidnap him and basically force him to, you know, they want him to procreate with with this other woman that they have on their planet. And I thought it would be really interesting to do that because um, they've messed with the timeline on Star Trek already. And Kirk is captain of the Enterprise sooner than he should be. So he could actually theoretically encounter those aliens firsthand himself. And then we could see like how he would have dealt with the situation in, in Pike's place. But I also don't really want them to base it on any episode. I want, I, I want them to come up with something original and thoughtful and... And in the spirit of the original series, but I, I think John's right. I mean, they, they, it's a Hollywood blockbuster franchise now, and they've got to kind of meet those expectations. Um, I, although I was frankly surprised that they went as as crazy star- science fiction as they did. I mean, bringing in parallel universes and alternate timelines and time travel and all that other stuff is is a lot to ask for an audience that isn't that versed in science fiction and that was the audience that they were going for with the with the reboot movies i think i don't think that time travel and parallel worlds are that i mean come on everyone knows those tropes by now i mean they're all over the place uh, i mean it doesn't seem like it's asking a lot of an audience to follow time travel at this point in well it's not so much that i i thought it was going to be too confusing although i mean it almost gets there but i thought that it was too science fictiony to present to an audience like first thing uh, admittedly they're watching a, a, mo- a movie about people on a on a starship and everything but it's, that's like almost like too much for for somebody to accept like if they had found some way to ground it more in like some kind of character thing that then i think that would have had broader appeal than to suddenly like throw in like okay here's all this crazy stuff that's going on and there's like red matter and time travel and two spocks because you, 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 the thing with time travel is you have to stop the action. There was that scene on the bridge where Spock basically had to sit there and explain, like, this is what's going on. For the people who know what's going on, then that's just, like, annoying. And then the people who have to kind of catch up and figure out what's going on, they're like, huh? Oh, but, but, I mean, it seems like now that they've done the time travel alternate history thing, it seems like they almost have to 
make the rest of those movies about reinterpretations of familiar elements or else kind of what's the point, you know, I mean, if you're just going to do something totally unrelated, something totally new, why don't you just start your own new series? Well, I mean, except that they're capitalizing on, on you know, pre-existing characters. And as we've discovered, they're not so successful with coming up with new characters and new dynamics and new ships and new scenarios and, and making them like work really well. I don't really know what they're doing with the sequel. I've been actually not not really trying too hard to find out. You know, there were rumors about Khan coming back, and that was really disappointing to me because that's like just too easy. And also, I don't see how they could possibly improve on it. But they've been doing these comics. I haven't I haven't been reading them, but uh, they've been doing comics that are telling some of the original series storylines with the new characters, and things happen at least a little bit differently in most of the time. Um, sometimes it seems like the, they happen almost exactly the same, except for like one difference, like one character is different or things like that. Did you guys see The Captains, this William Shatner documentary that, that came out recently? I saw The Captains. It's on Netflix. It's kind of a train wreck. So, I mean, my take on it is um, William Shatner is nuts. And he took this, it's, it's an interesting idea to have him like inter interviewing each of the actors who has played a, a captain on Star Trek. But he kind of turned it around and made it all about him. Like he'd be interviewing people and then suddenly he'd, he'd use that as a, as a way to talk about his own issues and his own problems. And like he's interviewing Avery Brooks, you know, who played Cisco on DS9. And they're like doing freeform, like they're doing jazz together and kind of acting like crazy. And then he like insults Kate Mulgrew, who's Janeway, and says, oh, it must have been really hard for you to, to be a, a, a female captain with all those uh, female emotions. And like my jaw dropped when he said that. And she holds it together. Like she is, she is so good. But then he's like starts trying to psychoanalyze her. And I was just like, why are you doing this? Like, just shut up. I guess, though, that that was one thing that really struck me was I had no idea what a emotional strain it was being on one of those shows. You know, you sort of imagine it being kind of glamorous. And it just it seems like they all basically said that their marriages all fell apart because of they were just on set 24 hours a day. Uh, and you saw that William Shatner has another documentary coming out. No. <laughs> he has one called Get a Life coming out. Oh, no, really? Yeah, you want to explain maybe what that means, Eugene? Oh, so there's a Saturday Night Live skit, a famous Saturday Night Live skit with uh, William Shatner. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I guess he's at, a, he's at a convention and he's taking questions from the fans. And they're the typical tricky questions that, you know, you go to a con and you're kind of annoyed by these questions that people ask. And he just like goes off on one of the fans and tells him to get, to get a life. And uh, he was sort of infamous for this thing. Um, I mean, I guess it, it wasn't funny. <laughs> you know, it was kind of... And also, you sort of felt like he meant it. I think, I think it's sort of something that he kind of had to own after, after a little while. It's kind of like uh, Leonard Nimoy wrote a book um, after Star Trek that said, I am, I am not Spock. And then it was like years later where he did a follow-up that says, okay, I am Spock. You know, um, it's kind of this thing where the, the actors would try to distance themselves and, and again, like look down on the fans. Like, I don't, I don't think Leonard Nimoy has ever looked down on the fans, but like William Shatner certainly did. 
and uh, and that was a reputation that I guess he's now kind of going to address in this in this thing. I think it's a terrible idea. <laughs> well, I mean, what do you think it is about Star Trek? It seems like Star Trek is sort of the whipping boy of you know, like you know, anytime Jay Leno needs to make fun of nerds, he'll make a joke about a Star Trek convention. Like, why is it Star Trek rather than Doctor Who or Star Wars or like anything else? Probably it's just the most recognizable thing that has conventions out there that uh, that the that the general public knows about. That it's probably the easiest thing to go for. I mean, that's that's what Jay Leno does, right? He goes for the lowest hanging fruit, right? Yeah, like the the easiest joke. I mean, it does seem to me though that there's just something kind of earnest about Star Trek that I think is really admirable, but that that makes it an easy target for mockery. It's sort of like you know. Let's make a better world. Let's respect everybody's differences. And so, you think that there, there, it's a reaction to the ideals behind the show, and not so much the fact that the fans are so caught up in it. You know, I mean, fans are caught up in football. You know, fans are caught up in all sorts of stupid things. And like, what what is it about Star Trek? You know, fans are caught up in Star Wars, obviously, or whatever. I mean, I, I do think that there's you know, there's just something about this sort of idealism that just inspires a hostile response uh from bullies i would say well but like in the trailer for this get a life movie they show a boy who i mean it looks like i think maybe has a cerebral palsy or something i mean it looks like he's essentially paralyzed and he's was he the same kid from uh from the captains because there was a really awkward moment in the captains where William Shatner's at a convention and he meets a kid who's who's um in a chair and he can't speak and he can't move and William Shatner just starts talking to him and like putting words into his mouth. He's like, "Oh, you're really excited to be here, aren't you? Like it's it's really great for you to meet me." And all this this weird condescending stuff that like on the one hand you feel like he's trying to be nice to this guy, but he's so ill-equipped to relate to somebody in this situation um or really to anyone that you know, it just made me really, really uncomfortable to watch him to watch him do this. But I mean, you can understand like someone, you know, someone with serious health problems and things like that, that the Star Trek world is so appealing because it is a world where people wouldn't just be mean to you for no reason or for mean spirited reasons. So, it, I mean, it just seems like, you know, given a choice between sort of the Star Trek world and sort of the Jay Leno world, it, it seems like it's almost like the the light side and the dark side of the entertainment world in terms of intellect and kindness versus vacuousness and mean-spiritedness. If, if you don't know Star Trek, if you don't watch it, they don't make the effort to actually understand it on any sort of a deeper level than what they can see. And so Star Trek, I think, has been fighting the perceptions that people have had of it since the 60s. So you look at the cheap sets and the bright colors and the goofy costumes and the and the skimpy outfits and you look at it on a superficial level as nothing more than camp and they're not really aware that the stories themselves and the the ideas behind it go much deeper than that and actually say a lot about our society and the human condition and our hopes for the future and all those things. You know, speaking of the sets, I, I, I can't, I, I can't even sort of logically explain the, the sadness that I felt like when, when, when it was announced, uh, I don't know, in the past couple of years, like 
I don't know who was it, uh, Paramount or whoever, like they just finally tossed out those old sets or whatever, and they were just like sort of tossed in a dumpster somewhere. I was like, that just made me so sad that the Star Trek sets were just thrown away as garbage. That should be in a museum. Oh, wait, that's a different frame. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of it is. I mean, they've got the Enterprise and the Smithsonian. One thing I wonder about, though, watching, like watching, say, the J.J. Abrams Star Trek is that it seems to me a very kind of outdated view of the future. I've kind of just given up on the idea of humans on starships. Uh, it just seems like by the time we have starships, we won't be human anymore. Or we just will never. I mean, there's been discussions recently of like actually starships would basically just be like downloaded consciousnesses in a cube with a white sail or something like that. I mean, the, just the idea of a starship is is just kind of taking a you know sailing ship analogy and translating into space. It just doesn't. It's, it's not. It's not ever what it's going to be like. Um, and so I just wonder: is like the popularity of a franchise like Star Trek is that holding holding back science fiction in film and TV because there are these conventions of the franchise and the longer the franchise sticks around, those certain conventions are never going to, they, they just ossify and continue on generation after generation. But, uh, you know, where's the, where's the drama in downloading your consciousness into a drone and sending that into space? This, this is like one of my things, but this like, our, is our, ideas of what makes a good story fundamentally at odds with good science fiction. And I think it is because what people want out of a story, I think, is golden age science fiction is like somebody just like me gets on a spaceship and goes zipping across the universe and has crazy adventures with aliens, you know, where they fight aliens and stuff. Whereas more realistically, what would happen is some post-human drone, as you put it, gets in a spaceship, you know, 5,000 years later, <laughs> they show up at a star. You know, I mean, it's it's so divorced from us, but it's a more intellectually rigorous extrapolation of the future. Well, I mean, I think you um, can you can tell those types of stories in fiction, in in short stories or novels. Uh, it, it, as a movie, it's much more challenging, and I don't see how anyone would. I mean, the one thing that gives me hope for that kind of thing is is like you know the whole uh, current uh, genre of, of like the Pixar type animated film. Where like mm -hmm. I could see I could see something like that working. Well, like Wally with no humans. Yeah, yeah, right? just you know, just anything that yeah. anything that that involves you know space travel without human beings on a spaceship. I, I mean, you know, I've heard I've heard a few rumors about uh, Star Trek TV shows being in development. I think Brian Fuller is it that wanted to do it. Yeah. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I I'd be happy to see another one uh, come on the air. If I had my druthers, what I would want is I would have basically something similar to Star Trek's Next Generation, except instead of having it be completely episodic like it was, have character development from episode to episode. Like, for instance, I mean, personally, like what I want out of television shows because of the serialized format, I want like that previously on Star Trek or whatever. Like, you know, the sort of mm -hmm. the, 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 the two minute recap of what you need to know uh, if you hadn't watched the previous episode. Like, I want that to be necessary. To like to follow the episode you know what i mean because it's like i want the story to continue because i mean i'm going to watch every episode you know what i mean like <laughs> if i'm watching a show i'm going to watch every one i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be like oh I'll, I'll just skip three episodes and then jump back in you know i i want there to be i want to be rewarded for watching every episode so i mean that's to me is like the big thing that star trek has been missing 
Um, and, uh, and I know they basically tried to do that with Babylon five, but I never got into that. And it's like, I mean, I, I want that in the Star Trek universe. They did these episodes of Voyager where, um, they encountered these like time ships from the 30th century, I think. And I always thought it'd be really cool to do a time travel series based on like Star Trek, like where you're on one of those time ships. Um, and of course, if you did that, then you have to get Scott Bakula as your captain, right? I guess one thing I wanted to mention is that whenever I complain about the horrific travesties that were the endings of Battlestar Galactica and Lost, uh, somebody will say, oh, but it's just inevitable that a series can't end well and it'll just be disappointing and completely betray everything that came before. And I say, no, look at Star Trek The Next Generation. That's a perfectly good, satisfying, non-travesty betrayal ending to a TV series. You know, it's definitely it's definitely one of the best uh, series endings uh, ever. I don't remember the end of uh, the other shows as well. I remember, you know, like Voyager getting back to Earth, and it was, I think it worked okay. I don't, I don't actually remember the end of Deep Space Nine. Um, Deep Space Nine was an interesting thing, because it sort of, it almost is open-ended. Like, all of the characters kind of went their different, separate ways, and some of them stayed on Deep Space Nine, and, like, Cisco is maybe dead, like, lost in the... I think he's like in the wormhole or something like there's some weird weirdness going on there, but that was sort of like a less satisfying thing. And and I think most people want to see some continuation of that. And, Oh, and the ending of enterprise was just a, a, a disaster. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but, uh, the end of enterprise, it turns out it has, it's, it's all been on a holodeck the whole time. no, yeah, well, maybe not the whole time, but the last episode of, of Enterprise takes place in the sixth season of Star Trek The Next Generation, in the episode The Pegasus. And the premise of it is that Riker, because both Jonathan Frakes and Marina Sirtis were, on, in, were in this episode, uh, Riker's trying to decide whether or not to take another command. And he watches Enterprise on the holodeck and studies Archer at the birth of the Federation or the birth of Starfleet or one of those things. And he's just like interacting with the characters as a, as an observer on the holodeck. And then the show, the episode ends with like the founding of, of the Federation and Riker says, you know, computer and program and the holodeck thing ends and he walks off. Okay. But it is all stuff that actually happened. He's just watching basically a recording of it. I guess. Yeah. But it was kind of a weird, like, I think a lot of uh, certainly the people who were on Enterprise, like the the cast and and the crew of Enterprise, felt like they'd been cheated, you know, because they weren't able to kind of have their own episode. It ended up being like, yeah, I mean, it sounds like kind of a weak uh, ending to the show, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with a weak ending to a weak show. Uh, and probably the most painful part of it is that you've got like Jonathan Frakes in his sixth season, like Star Trek: The Next Generation uniform, and they're trying to pass him off as the age that he was, like, when that episode aired, which was, what, like, 15 years before that or something like that. Marina Sirtis actually still looks really good, but Jonathan Frakes, not so much. Sorry, Jonathan, if you're listening. All right, so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, Eugene, thanks for joining us. Thanks again. It was really fun. And remember that you can follow along with Eugene's Star Trek Rewatch project over at theviewscreen.com. So last episode, I mentioned that my buddy Dustin Thomas is interested in making a short film version of my time travel story, The Second Rat, 
And you can now watch a Kickstarter video for that, in which I make an appearance, over at thesecondrat.com, where you can also read the text of my short story for free. All right, so that was our show. Thanks to John Scalzi for being our guest today. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.